It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Well, yeah, if you look behind me, you will see not only some Christmas decorations, you will see a live fire going. Wow, cozy. Back there in the fireplace. That is awesome. That is crackling. Mostly that's because our heat system is a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually quite cold today. So we're actually doing that. For well, do you work. know, Scott, fires can actually make the room colder. This is a true fact about really? fires. Really? How is that? It, I don't know. Oh, Somehow yeah. it like sucks the heat in or... No, no. It sucks the heat out. If you have a fire in a chimney, that, yeah, all it does that's what is, it is. It, is it draws the air from the room into the chimney, heats it up, and then it goes out of your chimney. You know, you have to get like a stove oh. and there's insulation. It's very there's involved. a whole... My, my, my my wife and I are in the process of thinking about maybe one day replacing our profoundly busted fireplace with like a nice gas insert. And the technology is very advanced. This is a gas fireplace in Italy, so we have that. We have that. We do not have that problem. Okay. okay. Um, with the actual chimney, the way it's like vented, it's it gets very warm very fast. So we are we're in good shape. As as a Minnesotan, I was just going to say I am skeptical of your DC swamp winter. It was snowing here this morning. We had snow. Wow, we're gonna have a we're gonna have a white Christmas, guys. It's gonna be crazy. <laughs> that's not that's not gonna happen. Meanwhile, Alan is buried under twenty feet of snow. There's no snow. It is totally it is totally bare, sunny. It's like in the high forties today. It's great. Everyone Balmy. move to the upper Midwest. <laughs> and hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security Two Point aka Rational Security. The Lost Rationale. Because I am very happy to be here with my co-host, Quidditch Jurassic. Hello. And Alan Rosenstein. Hello, hello. And absolutely no one else. Because we have decided to do a <laughs> three-person edition of Rational Security. We drove everyone away. Exactly. We drove everyone away. They're all still recovering from their Thanksgiving meals and holidays, nice and cozy at home. This certainly is not reflective of the fact that we have been suffering a bit of a holiday hangover ourselves and may have fallen a bit behind on scheduling. No, no. Shame on you if you had that thought. We're definitely not phoning it in, audience. Don't worry about it. 100% prepared for this episode with lots of insights. (laughs) We are very happy to have everyone here today for the Holiday Hangover Edition. As we hash through a number of the national security stories that arose last week, despite it being a short holiday week. Topic number one, Show me your Omicron face. <laughs> Scientists have identified a virulent new strain of the coronavirus, leading governments to enact travel bans and other restrictions. What does this tell us about our future living with the virus? I ran aground in Vienna. That was not a good one, guys. I'm sorry. I couldn't come up with a good one for this one. A new, a new, a new round of talks seeking to revive the 2015 Iran nuclear agreement kicked off this week in Vienna. Are the parties stuck or is there hope for progress? And topic three, did you know that one in five former federal employees suffers from premature publication? <laughs> okay, I just, I, sorry, Scott, before you go for it, I just, I need to explain to our audience that <laughs> we prioritize coming up with clever topic titles far, far more than prioritize the actual research that goes into them. So I feel like we've done our job with that title today. 
Thank you, Scott. Please continue. Yeah, you all can you all can feel free to turn off the podcast now. You're welcome. <laughs> da, da, uh, dun, 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 a, a new lawsuit asks the Supreme Court: Are the pre-publication review requirements imposed on former federal employees consistent with free speech? For our first topic, let's turn to the new Omicron variant that scientists appear to have uncovered in the past week or two, uh, maybe even just the last week. Um, this is a new strain that originally was, I think, identified as arising in South Africa and other parts of Southern Africa, although now it's been detected in Canada a few cases, uh, a few cases in Europe, a few cases in other parts of the world. A number of governments, including the United States, reacted to the discovery of this variant, uh, which appears to be potentially more contagious, although we don't really know its characteristics. We need some more time to study it and determine what exactly it looks like and how it interacts with the existing vaccines. But nonetheless, a number of governments took the kind of preemptive steps of setting up travel restrictions from uh, South Africa and other countries in Southern Africa, and from potentially other travel restrictions as well. I believe Israel and another country that I'm blanking on which country it was completely shut down. Japan. Japan, that's what it was. Thank you. Uh, shut down external uh, visits, uh, anybody coming into the country to try and limit the transfer of this virus. And it looks like another phase, similar to what we went through with the Delta variant, um, where it's a new cycle of a spike in potential coronavirus activity, a scramble for a new vaccine or vaccine booster in this case, or some other sort of cure. And in the interim, government's scrambling to do something that obviously has potential to have major disruptions in lots of other areas of our lives, economic, social interaction, things like that. So Quintel, let me turn to you first on this sort of topic. You know, we're kind of going to a phase, it looks like we're maybe going from a pandemic, meaning a, which is kind of an isolated incident, even though an extended one, to something that's a little more of an endemic experience, something that's a recurring facet of life, like other viruses are in our life, like the flu and other items with the coronavirus. Are we beginning to get a peak of what that's going to be like? Is this sort of reaction what we can expect now every six months to a year? Or are we still in that kind of transitional phase where we're still figuring out how to handle these new variants when they arise? I think the latter pretty clearly insofar as, look, I mean, it seems from what I have read, not a public health expert, don't take advice from me, that... We are, yes, heading toward at some point a world where COVID is like the flu and like the flu, you know, you get a new vaccine every year and it puts some people in the hospital and generally we do not shut down our whole lives. Although perhaps indoor mask wearing, at least in public transit and stores, et cetera, will become more common during the winter. It's it's hard to say. We are obviously not there yet insofar as a lot of people remain unvaccinated and therefore, the threat to those people is quite severe, potentially. We don't know the details on, is it Om Omicron? Omicron? How do you pronounce this? I didn't take Greek. Omicron? I think it's Omicron. I say Omicron. Omicron. I, I try and say it like the most wicked Decepticon you can imagine. And that would definitely be sounding like Omicron. <laughs> I'm just going to go with Omicron. And, and listeners listeners can correct us. I'm just glad we don't have to deal with people saying that new is actually pronounced knee. Look, that seems to be clear that that is where we're headed. We're not, we're not there yet. I also think it's really important to frame the discovery of this new variant in the context of the conversations that I know we've had on this podcast about global vaccine equity and research, right? So 
The U.S., as we noted, um, in addition to a number of other countries, responded to news of the variant by limiting travel from South Africa and other countries in Southern Africa. That is bananas. We already went through this the first time around. Travel bans do not work in these kinds of situations because by the time that you institute one, it is too late. And indeed, right before we started recording, news broke that uh, researchers in the Netherlands discovered evidence that Omicron had been circulating in that country well before it was detected in South Africa. And if you, you know, put travel bans on countries that detect these these variants, what you're doing is essentially punishing those countries for uncovering them, uh, which is a particularly wild thing to do in the case of South Africa, which has an incredibly sophisticated disease testing apparatus um, and is now essentially being punished for discovering Omicron and spreading the word about it. I mean, there was an astonishing tweet on November 29th from uh, Tilio de Oliveira, who is a South African researcher who I think his team first announced news of uh, Omicron, essentially saying that he'd spent his day talking to genomic and biotech companies, trying to get more reagents for his lab because they're about to run out because of the travel restrictions. That makes absolutely no sense. And so South Africa, I think there's a, a rush of people to say, you know, well, they're, you know, the variant perhaps developed there because the population is is undervaccinated. In South Africa, it's my understanding is that they actually do have access to plenty of vaccine supply. There is vaccine hesitancy among many members of the South African population. And for that reason, their vaccine, the vaccination rate is not particularly high. But it is also true that elsewhere in Southern Africa and elsewhere on the continent, the rates are really low because countries have not been sharing their vaccine supply. And so you end up with a lot of Africa where the, the vaccination rate is, I think, in the single digits. And this is incredibly predictable. I mean, I remember having this conversation on this podcast, reading news articles about it early on in the pandemic of scientists saying, you know, look, if we do not vaccinate all of the world in an equitable manner, we are going to end up with pockets of the population where the virus is circulating, it mutates, it evolves, and you end up with new potentially dangerous variants. We didn't work hard enough to distribute vaccines equitably around the globe. And look what happened. So there is a little bit of a Groundhog Day element here, you know, that we kind of saw with Delta and we're seeing it again now. And watching this all unfold, it feels a little bit like, you know, just hitting my head repeatedly against the wall because we knew that this might happen. We have the tools to prevent it from happening. And yet, here we go again. Yeah, I, I agree with everything Quinta said. And it does remind me of a part of the conversation we had last time we talked about COVID on this podcast and kind of a small point about the naming conventions, which again, in the grand scheme of things, doesn't really matter what, what you call these variants, but I think does reflect an interesting fact. You know, The reason we use all these Greek letters is because the old style of calling disease or variant by where it's from, right? The Spanish flu or stuff like that is thought to be stigmatizing. And in many cases can be stigmatizing, can be a real problem. And so you move to this more neutral Greek letter thing. But I wonder what the Greeks feel about their alphabet being used to talk about COVID constantly. But I do think there's a thing gets lost actually when you talk about Delta or Omicron, you know, without being clear as where this came from, right? Which is the fact that this is a global disease and what happens in any particular country will very quickly have effects 
around the world, right? The fact this came from South Africa doesn't mean that this is South Africa's fault, right? That's very, very important to make clear. Well, I should say we we don't we don't know whether it came from South Africa, right? Yeah. It was first detected in South Africa because they were looking for it. So maybe it came from there, but it might not have. Excellent point. If it came from South Africa, that does not mean it is South Africa's fault or that South Africa should be punished, right? Whatever their issues are, whether it's a supply issue, it's a vaccine hesitancy issue, that has to be dealt with, right? But it is, again, I think worth emphasizing that you know, every part of the world is now vulnerable to every other part of the world for reasons Quinta explained. Travel bans are largely COVID theater, you know, don't actually do anything and, and do strike me as, especially for those countries like Japan or, or Australia that, you know, managed to avoid kind of the worst of the first wave are now sort of desperately trying to keep COVID out of their countries forever in this cycle of shutdowns, which, you know, every country gets to make the decisions that it wants to make for itself. But that does strike me as a fairly limited efficacy. And, and so now, now you have this issue. I, I think, you know, to, to take the conversation in a domestic direction, you know, what I am curious about is what the American response will be. My, my sense is that there is no appetite whatsoever on either the right or the left, including kind of even a lot of the public health left, to go back to the, sh the shutdowns, the lockdowns, the school closures that we had, you know, in the first wave of COVID and even though we had some a little bit around Delta. I do think that makes sense. I mean, that strikes me as the right answer, you know, to the extent that I have, you know, any ability to speak on behalf of American society, right? Obviously, I'm just channeling my own views here. But I do think in a situation where you have quite effective vaccines, and obviously, there are questions of how effective the vaccines will be against Omicron, but, you know, there's reason to think that they will be somewhat protective, and that there will be boosters for Omicron probably down the line, just as there were boosters for, you know, there will be boosters for Delta and things of that nature. You know, once you have effective vaccines, and Basically, those people who want to take it have the ability to, right? Uh, then I think it becomes a lot harder to justify imposing enormous social costs because there are, you know, a large sizable population of the population has decided voluntarily not to get protected against COVID. I think that's especially true for this disease where young children in particular seem pretty robustly protected, even without vaccinations, right? Obviously, there's still a lot of research there. But um, this does seem to be one of the more fortunate features of, of COVID is that, you know, children, especially infants, and I say this as someone with an infant, so I have a real vested interest in this. Um, they, they seem relatively safe. Obviously, if you're, you know, compromised, and you can't take a vaccine, that's a real problem. Because, you know, that's not your fault that you're unprotected. But I, I don't think our society is going to be willing to shut down to protect the adult immunocompromised population because there's a much larger portion of the adult population that has decided not to get the COVID vaccine. Whether that's the right moral decision, that's a different question. But just as a predictive case, I think that's what's going to happen. I want to step back for just a minute and not come to the defense of travel bans, but put them in their context. Because I actually think that they're part of a solution. There's a reason government turned to them, although there's a very, very strong element of theater. I think that's 100% right is that it's a tool that doesn't really stop the spread of the virus, particularly when they're not complete travel bans or because you have, when they're not like travel bans like Japan or Israel are doing where like basically no one can come in, but they can stop the rate at which the virus rapidly enters a population, which is when you have governments trying to ramp up hospital bed availability, ventilators, other things they may need if it's a variant that is vaccine resistant. We don't know whether that's the case or not yet with Omicron might be some reasons you want those sorts of things. I think there are 
much more easily to criticize a because when you have incomplete bans, they obviously like U.S. citizens can communicate this disease as easily as non-citizens. So why are the former exempted from the travel bans, not the latter? There are good legal and policy reasons why, like politically, that's an easier sell, but doesn't help you on the public health front, and it makes it a lot less effective, probably, but not necessarily ineffective, like not without any value. I think the real question here, though, is is the trade offs question, right? Like this is all a collective goods problem. It's about shifting costs, and kind of like in the domestic scheme, in terms of uh, a lot of the debates about you know requiring people to get vaccination to the extent that that's appropriate or not appropriate. In a situation like this, you are inherently imposing costs on certain actors more than others. I think the challenge is that we don't have a very good system to try and do so efficiently and then compensate the parties that are burdened adequately so that you don't have a major humanitarian cost on other fronts, which ideally you would have in these sorts of circumstances and that you would want so as to avoid disincentivizing, you know, states from reporting this sort of stuff so they don't get punished, as Quinta described it, which I, I think is maybe often how it feels, but obviously is not the intent, right? It's not intended to be punitive. I don't think you're suggesting it was, but I also don't know if that's the right the right framing of it generally. Like, I, I don't think that that's – that may be, again, how it's perceived, but it's – some of these measures may be necessary and appropriate that have a negative implications for other countries. I don't think that means that those are inappropriate to implement, but you have to understand the cost being imposed on them and maybe some steps should be taken to ensure that's not, you know, doesn't just accentuate and further exaggerate existing inequities. Well, I mean, I think there's research been done that the problem is, you know, if you could implement a travel ban before people got in with the variant, that would be great. But the problem is that by the time you know you need to implement a travel ban, the variant is already there. And so I do worry about that theater aspect. And I also think that it, you know, as we saw with Trump, implementing a travel ban like that feeds into notions of immigrants, in this case of of Africans, as dirty, as unclean in a way that I think is profoundly ugly, especially because if the disease did indeed emerge in Southern Africa, it likely did so because of vaccine inequity and hesitancy because of historic inequities. And so it just makes me really uncomfortable. And I do think, you know, building on Alan's point about the extent to which this disease is global, it makes it seem like we can protect ourselves, whoever ourselves is, by sealing ourselves off from the rest of the world. I think what Delta and Omicron show is that the only way to fight this is to acknowledge that we're dealing with it as a interconnected world and that a variant that shows up in one place will end up somewhere else. And therefore, we all have an interest in distributing vaccines as wisely as possible. I, I think that's right. But it just doesn't get you around the problem that the vaccine is going to hit unequally around the world and it's going to hit, in fact, different countries and different populations in an unequal manner, right? Like you're always going to have those distributive consequences of a spike of a new variant and countries are going to react in different ways. What you need is some sort of understanding and mechanism for finding ways to iron out some of those inevitable inequities that are going to arise. And that's really what's lacking here, whether it is vaccine distribution, which again, we don't know is actually like something that will clearly resolve this. Again, we could have a vaccine resistance strain, in which case existing vaccinations are but it could, But it could resolve it if you had a vaccine that was targeted to Omicron in the future, right? right. Like that is how this got here in the first place. Right. Yeah, exactly. But it's but in the current stage, it's I, I think the, the point here is, is that we need to separate the social consequences from what not separate entirely, but 
recognize them, but also recognize, not use them to say, this is an invalid method. If there are health benefits, you've got to think about ways you can implement it in a more equitable and fair fashion, whether it's travel bans or other measures, because there are other things that can be equally expensive. Also, just access to vaccines is an equal parallel, right? Hugely, huge distributive consequences for the world, but a very necessary step. And then the question becomes like, well, how do you actually increase access to these things? Um, I think it's really interesting. That's why we're actually seeing discussion of a new treaty regime around this, uh, trying to address some of these exact questions. It's still in a very early phase. Um, it's being discussed at the World Health Assembly, I think in the last week or two, uh, kind of an extraordinary session of that kind of international body. And that's kind of what they're wrestling with is how do we have a more unified response to this sort of thing? But uh, we'll see where it goes. In the interim, we're seeing these ad hoc responses as these situations arise. And it doesn't strike me as super sustainable for the simple reason that each one requires such a dramatic response that the external consequences to economies, to uh, disruptions in lives, international travel are going to outweigh the marginal benefits that that might come from these sorts of ad hoc applications of these sorts of policies without more considered kind of framework. Well, speaking of considered frameworks and uh, international agreements, uh, we also wanted to talk today about the Iran deal. Yes, that one. It has risen from the grave, sort of. So... Nuclear talks between Iran and various powers, including the U.S., China, and a number of European powers, are continuing this week in Vienna after a hiatus of about, I think, six months. Um, so listeners may recall that uh, Trump withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal to, to great fanfare. President Biden announced that he was interested in renegotiating. Iran, it seems, is also interested in renegotiating an agreement, although there have been serious changes um, within Iran domestically. There's a new president who is more hardline and seems to be taking a pretty tough approach to the negotiations. So, Scott, I want to first turn to you just to give us the lowdown on what exactly is happening and what we can expect. But the real question here in my mind is, frankly, if we can expect anything. <laughs> and second off, what incentive Iran has to negotiate here, given that for all we know, there could be a Republican president in 2024 and they could throw this out the window just as uh, Trump threw out the Iran deal? Well, that, that's the big question, really. Um, you know, right now we see this summit of sorts, not really a summit happening in Vienna, um, where the United States and Iran are both there. They're actually not meeting with themselves directly. Iran is consulting with the other members of the group of states that were involved in setting up the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, and the UN Security Council backing for it, that are still involved in the oversight body that the United States withdrew from under the Trump administration, withdrew from that agreement and arrangement. So they are meeting through a more formal mechanism. There may probably are side meetings and conversations happening as well. And the United States is consulting with those JCPOA members other than Iran. So they have this kind of intermediary, primarily Europe, the European Union uh, and EU states, uh, that are facilitating these sorts of conversations. So we see Emmanuel Macron from France being involved in this in the past. There's kind of a chief EU guy whose name is escaping me at the moment, who's kind of convening and driving these sorts of discussions. And they tend to be these sorts of things tend to be heavily staffed. You have lots of technical experts, other people there negotiating a lot of what may come out of this. The problem is, is that the Iranians have come in, having gone through this government transition as a new team from what was negotiating prior to the summer, where there was some like progress made on what a roadmap towards returning to the JCPOA might look like, but without any firm answers, but like some progress. 
now we have this new administration in Iran coming in, seen as hardliner, I think, as, as you described, Quinta, it, it is, you know, I, that's a term that gets thrown a lot around a lot in the context of Iran, sometimes in ways that don't make a lot of sense. But in this case, it's somebody's a little bit more nationalist, a little more, you know, revolutionary guard corps kind of factions within Iran, and is uh, has taken the stance that they have two main demands, is that A, they need full sanctions really from all sanctions the United States has imposed since the JC they withdrew from the JCPOA. That is not just those that were invalidated by the JCPOA. The JCPOA said we're going to pull back from which are nuclear related. The Trump administration then imposed a whole array of sanctions under other authorities, terrorism related, arms trade related, things like that. They also want to see withdrawn that aren't within the scope of the original JCPOA. And then they say they want assurances from both the United States and the Europeans uh, involved and others involved with the JCPOA body that there will not be a future withdrawal. It's not even clear what that sort of assurance would look like because our political and legal system here in the United States like, doesn't really provide an easy mechanism of preventing a future withdrawal. Maybe Congress could enact something into legislation if you could get the right margins there. It'd be very tight squeeze through the existing Congress, even with Democratic control of both chambers. So if those two demands remain in place, that's the big question. Like, how do you get past that? So I think the big thing to come out of this session is to say, how much wiggle room is there around those demands? Are these things that are intended to kill future negotiations by the Iranian regime or are they may show some flexibility or openness to flexibility that will signal that there's a road to future negotiations moving forward? I think that's the real test question coming out of this round of discussions. Yeah, I, I want to follow up on the the point that Scott made about what sort of legal mechanisms there are in American law to provide the Iranians with assurances that, as Quinta pointed out, the next time the Republicans take over the White House, they don't just withdraw. And, you know, there, there are no perfect options, but there are some options. And this is something that's really important to make clear, right? Executive agreements don't mean anything in American law in the sense of binding anyone to anything. The whole point is that they are purely exercises of presidential discretion, especially when it comes to foreign affairs. Um, we do have two mechanisms in American law to solve this problem, to make credible commitments to our international interlocutors that we mean what we say. One of them, which is, I would imagine, sort of the preferred way because it's in the Constitution, is the treaty power, right? The president can negotiate a treaty and then, you know, the Senate can consent to that treaty with a two-thirds vote. And that is generally how treaties have been agreed to in American diplomatic history. Now, for a variety of reasons, that has fallen out of favor in part because it's very hard to get two-thirds of the Senate to do anything in a polarized environment. So, you know, the other alternative which is what Scott mentioned, is the congressional executive agreement whereby the president makes an agreement with a foreign country. That agreement is binding under international law. That agreement has no legal domestic effect, really. And so Congress then passes just an ordinary piece of legislation to implement that. Now, you do have both houses of Congress controlled by the Democrats. That does seem plausible, or that does seem at least possible, though you still have the issue of the filibuster in the Senate, which the Democrats would have to overcome. Uh, and I'm actually not convinced that you could get enough Democratic votes, frankly, for the you know a new Iran nuclear agreement, right? I mean, there are plenty of kind of more conservative, more hawkish Democrats that might not be so interested in this. So you know, the the, the point is just is just to say, unfortunately, we're in a situation right now where the United States cannot really credibly commit to Iran because Biden doesn't have the votes now. And, and I think it's important to appreciate this, right? It's just he, he has to convince the voters and through the voters, the 
representatives in DC that this is what America should do. But in the absence of that, um, there is no way to credibly signal to the Iranians because, of course, it's not what America seems to think, or at least not in enough margins to provide that kind of assurance. I just want to add one technical point on that, Alan, because there's actually an interesting development about this that happened just about a year ago at the very waning days of the Trump administration that got overlooked a lot that's relevant to this, which is that the Trump administration's Office of Legal Counsel issued a pair of opinions regarding treaty withdrawal uh, from congressional executive agreements and from Article 2 treaties. And they actually made this pretty bold argument saying that essentially the president has the authority to withdraw from even Article 2 treaties or congressional executive agreements on the international level. There'd still be potentially domestic implementing legislation that could be binding on the president. But on the international level, unilaterally and can't be restricted in doing so by Congress, asserting that that is an exclusive authority of the president. I find that to be a real reach of an argument. I think it's really interesting also, like this is an argument that I think may have been a bit of a Trump administration product and a core OLC product. I'm not 100% sure. Like there's definitely a line of that sort of thinking about a strong presidential role in treaties in the Office of Legal Counsel. But this was a case where in the Open Skies Treaty argument, the, the the one of the main opinion that kind of fleshed out this idea, they had easier routes by which they could have not reached this constitutional question that they chose not to take and instead squarely confronted the constitutional question, um, which I take as a sign of a voluntary choice of laying down a legal marker that the Trump administration may have wanted to do as an administration that likes withdrawing from treaties and may, when they're in the future, back in office in the future, want to withdraw from additional treaties, including a fallen agreement with the JCPOA, trying to lay down a legal marker saying, we have precedent saying the executive branch thinks the president can do this. So it's actually even harder to some extent than, than you've laid out there. Like what you really need is binding legislation that restricts the president's ability to install sanctions. And instead, we've gotten the opposite, where Congress has usually played the bad cop to the president's good cop, saying more and more sanctions on Iran. So it's it's a really tricky predicament. One thing the Biden administration could do is withdraw those opinions, rebut their logic, and say that, no, in fact, international agreements, there's a strong congressional role, which I tend, tend to think is constitutionally correct. But you know, I don't, I don't think we're seeing that on the horizon, but, but who knows? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I mean, so I guess my question is, why does anyone on the international stage have an incentive to negotiate an international agreement with the United States under these circumstances, unless they're, you know, sufficiently confident that their good standing with the U.S. is important enough to the American people that Congress will either be willing to back something or would punish a president who who did renege on a deal? Because it just seems like we're headed toward a circumstance where in in areas of the world that are politically contentious in the United States, 
the United States is just in a position of constantly lurching back and forth and back and forth. And no one in the world can depend on U.S. assertions. Yeah. So so a couple of thoughts to what both you, Quinta, and Scott have, have said. So, you know, Quinta, to, to your question about why should foreign countries trust us, I mean, the, the answer is it's not a binary, right? There's no There's no such thing as like a perfectly trustworthy country or a completely untrustworthy country, right? There are countries that are pretty far out on either extreme, but most countries are sort of awkwardly in the middle. And so I think every country is constantly looking at, let's say, the United States and figuring out for itself this complex dynamic of what are the politics, you know, how much does a particular administration care about the institutional credibility of U.S. diplomacy versus its own partisan interests, et cetera, et cetera, specific acts can you know rebuild some amount of trust, right? You know, we talk about confidence building measures, and other acts can can diminish trust. So I, I think the issue is not you know should other countries trust the United States or not. It, it's more you know given what they've seen as possible in a far right Republican administration versus a Democratic administration versus who they think the next president will be versus the stakes on the table versus like all these other considerations. You get this very kind of hard to predict element. But I think to your core point, you're absolutely right. You know, the last decade or so of American foreign policy does not, and, and American domestic politics does not provide enormous assurances of, of this fact. You know, I, I think this actually, in a sense, gets a little bit to the to the legal point Scott was making about treaty withdrawal. You know, I, I think that as a structural matter, right? You know, you think of why the Constitution was written. One of the main reasons for the Constitution was to increase America's diplomatic power by creating a central government that could more credibly make commitments, right? And so if you think that in an increased age of polarization, having a treaty withdrawal power that's unilateral in the president undermines the ability of the United States to make treaties, which was like one of the main things that the framers of the Constitution were obsessed about because the Articles of Confederation were terrible at this, Right. That's an interesting, I think, structural argument for not giving the president this sort of unilateral power. As to the OLC opinions, I mean, the reason we have OLC opinions is because the Supreme Court has never definitively told us an answer. This was almost litigated back in the Carter administration when Carter uh, unilaterally withdrew from a, a defense treaty with, with Taiwan, but it was dismissed on political question grounds. And then the Supreme Court, again, didn't get involved back in the early 2000s when George W. Bush um, withdrew from, I think, one of the anti-ballistic missile test treaties. You know, it's a level of tea leaves reading that even I don't want to get into about like whether or not the current Supreme Court would apply the same sort of political question doctrine to foreign affairs. And there's all this literature about that. It gets super, super complicated. But to Scott's point, I do think that um, at the very least, revisiting those OLC opinions would be a good thing. There's actually one more twist to this that I think is even it's interesting, which is that under the executive branch's view, although it doesn't actually get at this that clearly in the most recent opinions, but it's in earlier OLC opinions, they actually make the argument the president can withdraw from treaties, but only in context where it's on terms permitted by the treaty itself like a withdrawal provision or international law. So there's like a whole body of international law regarding rules about when you can exit treaties, about cases of, you know, uh, violations, things like that by other parties. And we actually saw, I think, potentially the, even the Trump administration acknowledge that limit in its approach to the World Health Organization. If you recall, President Trump tried to withdraw from the World Health Organization. They actually didn't. They actually respected the one-year withdrawal deadline, um, which wasn't actually in the treaty. It didn't have a withdrawal provision. They did so, a lot of people thought, because because when Congress gave permission to the president to enter into that treaty, it said, well, only if you have a one-year withdrawal 
provision um, as a kind of reservation was through a statute. So it wasn't actually technically a reservation. I think it actually may be because the United States actually took that reservation and presented it to the World Health Organization's assembly and said, this is a condition on us entering this treaty. And it was approved by that body, which under international law basically makes it a internationally binding element of that treaty arrangement. I note this just to say in the JCPOA context, maybe you could get around this by entering into a stronger JCPOA, making an Article II treaty that binds the United States and says, no, the president actually can't exit this under all sorts of circumstances, you know, waives sorts of rights about uh, serious violations, other sorts of means of exit. That's going to be something that's going to make a lot of presidents uncomfortable, though. Like in all these cases, we rely so much on the executive branch to do the assessments of facts and analysis and national interests that drive a lot of the decision making around these sorts of agreements that it is hard to entirely get away from that strong element of executive branch authority in these sorts of cases, because even if you set up a legal regime, it's ultimately going to hinge on facts and determinations often made by the president. And this is a recurring problem throughout all sorts of kind of legislative and treaty arrangements that relate to foreign affairs and foreign relations. And I don't know if there is an easy way around it. You know, I think the way around it might be to have a more robust congressional role and maybe a more proactive engagement in setting up basically limits on particularly a more permanent withdrawal from certain types of international agreements. I've written an article in Foreign Affairs about this with, with a co-author, a couple other places saying, like, I think it's a valid route Congress could pursue for at least certain high-profile treaty regimes. But that just brings us all back to the political calculus, which, again, is the main issue here. Something that's controversial is just really unlikely to get the votes to do something like that. So it's not clear really where we, where we go from here, unless somebody can convince the Iranians, the Europeans, that the United States is political consensus how somehow has come to the view that, yeah, this is a sustainable way forward. And we've already seen former Trump administration officials and Republicans in Congress like Tom Cotton come out and expressly say, we intend to rip this up as soon as we take back the White House. So, uh, you know, it's, it's not really clear what the road forward looks like from here. So at some point, these negotiations with Iran will end, either in success or failure. But the negotiations, I assume, will involve lots of classified information. And people who engage in those negotiations may then want to write about their time in those negotiations. But will they be able to? And this, in a very forced segue, brings us to our third and final segment about pre-publication review. Uh, so a couple of stories to tee off the conversation. Uh, so first, Mark Esper, the former Secretary of Defense, who was uh, summarily terminated, uh, I, I think by tweet, uh, shortly after the November 2020 election by President Trump, is currently suing the Department of Defense because he alleges that they are holding up publication of his uh, forthcoming memoir, A Sacred Oath, and that they're using his uh, requirement of pre-publication review by which he, as a US, former U.S. government employee who had access to classified information, is obligated to pre-clear any writing that could involve that information with the U.S. government. And he alleges that the Department of Defense is using pre-publication review, uh, in this case, not actually to prevent the release of classified information, but because they don't want him talking about you know, embarrassing stuff about DOD or uh, the U.S. government. And so he is suing. And in an additional lawsuit, the uh, ACLU and the, the, Knight, uh, the Knight Institute, they're petitioning the Supreme Court to hear a kind of unrelated challenge, but on similar grounds to pre-publication review, arguing that this is a violation of the First Amendment and that it is just a very overbroad prior restraint on speech. So, you know, this, this topic uh, hits 
close to home a little bit for at least uh, some of us on this program. Uh, you know, I worked for the Department of Justice for several years. I had a, a security clearance. Um, I have gone through this uh, process in, in the past. Fortunately, I don't really write on these related topics anymore. Um, but, you know, as a US, former U.S. government employee and a holder of this clearance for some point, um, I have a lifelong obligation. And I believe uh, similar considerations are true for, uh, for Scott uh, as well in his time with the State Department. So let me turn to you, Scott. You know, to what extent do you think that the experiences of of both Esper and then um, you know Timothy Edgar, uh, who is the the lead plaintiff in the uh, the other lawsuit, to what extent are uh, their complaints with pre-publication representative of the overall process? Right? Is is this an issue where it's just for a couple of people they get stuck in this process, and you know it's an issue for them, or you know is it fair to say that pre-publication really does? meaningfully limit the ability of, you know, many, many, many people who have had security clearances and who want to write about stuff that it really meaningfully limits their ability to you know, express their ideas. You know, that's a good question. I think the one thing we have to bear in mind or think about this is that it's actually pre-publication process is something that has been applied differently across different agencies. So different agencies have sort of different approaches to the types of obligations. My approach to this whole thing has been I just avoid writing about things that I had any sort of involvement on like a sort of classified level. But it is kind of dodging. I live in constant anxiety that somehow I've done something wrong, not because I'm worried about giving away classified information, because I frankly am not, because I'm very careful about publicly sourcing anything I talk about with any sort of facts. And the nice part about being a legal writer is like, most of the time you're not really dealing with facts, you're talking about like the law, which doesn't is not classified kind of by nature. Also, <laughs> it's all Scott, out there. Haven't you forgotten everything? Like I, I have like the I mean maybe I'm a new parent or something and I have, therefore I have the memory of a goldfish, but like I don't remember anything that I learned at the US government. So like the idea that I have like classified information like bonking around in my head that's that I'm a, that's accidentally a great say like I don't I, I yeah. don't remember I had for breakfast. Your Honor, yesterday. I can't remember anything. <laughs> yeah, I have a very small child, Your Honor. There's no way I remember anything, any classified information. <laughs> The sleep deprivation defense is real. And I agree. No, I mean, I, and the fact that I've been out of government for a long time now, I think about as long as you have, Alan, maybe even a little longer, you know, it's it does. You, you've, your idea of memory kind of fades. That almost uh, somebody like, makes me more nervous to say somebody will, will say, oh, actually, you were on some email thread about this way back in the day. And I'm like, oh, I have no I have no idea. I have any recollection about this whatsoever if I even read that email. But nonetheless, there is this kind of obligation or this this, this thought, this concern about coming back to the core idea of all these programs, which is to prevent the disclosure of classified information. That's the goal here, right? Regimes are set up so that they can review these things to say, you're not supposed to be disclosing classified information. That's part of the, the process. And so it's how can you avoid through your own choices or through these review processes, any sort of disclosure along those lines. The trick we're seeing in the in the lawsuits here, and I particularly, I'm thinking of the ACLU lawsuit. I actually haven't read the briefing in the Esper one. I'm not sure I've, it's widely available yet. Um, I'm sure it's on the docket somewhere. The, that case, they're really making the argument that particularly the Internet Intelligence Community and Defense Department of Defense pre-publication review processes, which have much broader obligatory requirements than certain other agencies do, saying, you know, lots of things should be going through that relate to things like broad categories like national security and things like that, that that is actually what they're targeting, right? They're not targeting, and they're on those grounds targeting not just the practice of pre-publication review. Generally, they're saying these particular policies are overbroad and unnecessarily so. And they're particularly targeting, you know, a set of precedents that have been interpreted by lower courts to say that really any First Amendment concerns raised in this context by these sorts of restrictions 
are minimal. The government has broad discretion in asserting that. And they're saying, no, in fact, when you have these sorts of broad requirements, and particularly also when the process takes weeks or months to get through, that actually does have a substantial impact on speech. And agencies need to weigh that in a due process analysis, that deprivation, to say that, no, we need to come up with a process that balances that deprivation and limits it to only what's necessary to achieve our public interests, which in this case is the protection of classified information. On that ground, I think they have a very compelling argument. Um, we saw a compelling writing about this by Jack Goldsmith, Ona Hathaway, other legal scholars who, who've written about their own experiences and kind of the broader process around these sorts of items and these sorts of uh, obligations and, and process they go through. And it is a, it's a real, you know, onerous thing. And again, I, you know, insofar as people are choosing not to write about things that they may have a valid view and certainly would be able to express opinions about in other regards, like that itself is a deprivation of sorts. So I, I think that that's real. Um, I've written before about certain other types of restrictions the State Department particularly imposed on foreign service officers and diplomats that I think overly infringe on First Amendment rights of those civil servants. I think that's true here. And one thing that they're really relying on too is that the Supreme Court has been in kind of the last few decades, really, it's not a super recent development, much more focused on the fact that government employees have and retain First Amendment rights and that those are important and can't be so easily waived or done away with just because somebody's in federal employment. And so in that context, like I think there it's hard to know really fully like what this court's going to do. And I haven't delved into the different justices to think about where they land on this. But from a precedent perspective, it's not hard to see why this would all raise a lot of eyebrows, these sorts of broad policies. And we may see them budge. Um, the agencies say, well, we, we need to revisit this. There's been an effort in Congress to push in the do so repeatedly, and they've resisted that. And that's another big variable here is to say, despite Congress basically directing, although it actually wasn't in, in binding legislation, it was in kind of a, a conference documents, but nonetheless, strongly suggesting, hey, agencies, you need to do a better job at this. They, they haven't taken up the effort. And so maybe the court sanction is required for them to do that. That said, right now, it's just at the cert phase, and we don't know the Supreme Court's going to take it up. You know, uh, This is an area, these sorts of questions are the things that the courts don't like to weigh on. And so it's, I wouldn't be surprised if they don't get cert, but we'll have to wait and see. I will say I, I am not laboring under these restrictions as a, as a free agent, never having been employed by the U.S. government. But I can speak to what they look like from the point of view as an editor, because in my, my too many years as lawyers managing editor, I ran into this kind of thing a lot. Obviously, part of what we're trying to do is bring readers expertise from people who worked in government and can, you know, speak to the particular issue at hand. And, you know, as we've been saying, right, different agencies have different ways of dealing with this, but I've seen plenty of cases in which somebody wanted to write on something but couldn't because they were nervous about prepub, even if it didn't touch on any specifics of what they'd worked on and if they were able to source everything publicly. I've had situations where, Somebody wrote, you know, just a very quick little piece. In in one case, it was, you know, that that a, a person was retiring and they wanted to kind of publicly bid them bid them well, and that got stuck in prepub somehow, um, and was was never published because the agency in question just never went anywhere with it. So some agencies are better at this than others, but it was absolutely an issue from my perspective as an editor, and you know. 
assuming assuming the good faith of everyone who was writing for us, I don't think anyone was trying to you know smuggle government secrets out uh, into the public view through lawfare. There were just a lot of pieces that never happened or were cut short or had to have you know big chunks taken out of them because of this process and because people were afraid of running astray from it. So from my perspective, at least, that's a, a real loss. And to Quintus' point, you know, to Quintus' point, sort of as a journalist, as an editor, as someone whose job it is to connect people with interesting things with the broader reading public, this is part of the First Amendment concern, right? It's not just that these individuals have First Amendment rights to express themselves, and if they don't, that's a harm to them, which it definitely is. It's that one of the main ways that we get transparency as to what the government is doing is by sending people into the government and then they come out and then they write about it. So it's a big loss for the public uh, as well. And, and the final thing I will say is at a certain level, you know, this obviously has lots of constitutional stakes and lots of policy stakes, but there's also just like a basic HR issue here, which is that, you know, agencies that impose really, really stringent pre-publication review and in particular don't have clear standards and predictable modes of operation, right? You know, it's one thing to know, okay, I can't write about this, but I can write about this. It's another thing to say, I submitted a 200 word, you know, post about how great Sally Smith was. And like, it's been in limbo for nine months. Those agencies lose the ability to attract certain types of high quality candidates and certain high quality applicants. You know, lots of people want to be able not to spill classified secrets because they will go to jail if they do that. And they understand that, right? Like they are already deeply disincentivized to, to spill classified secrets, totally apart from pre-publication review. They just want to write about what they did because, you know, I don't know, we're, we're all our own brand ambassadors or something in the 2021. And it's important to, to, to write about your experiences. Um, and so to the extent that, you know, we can just think of this as an HR issue in terms of retaining and attracting the best talent. And I, I will say, right, something that I, I think is really great about the Department of Justice. I can't speak to any other agencies. I haven't worked for them. But DOJ understood this. You know, DOJ understood that a lot of people want to go to DOJ, but that they also then want to go and write, right? They might want to go become legal academics. They might want to go do other things. And so, you know, when dealing with the pre-publication people at DOJ and just talking to them, they understand that. And so, you know, they've always been pretty committed to exercising that power in, I think, a more responsible way. Though even then, not perfectly, as Jack Goldsmith, who was the head of OLC and had his own problems with pre-publication review and who has written about that extensively, has, has talked about. But look, if you're the CIA, if you're Department of Defense, if you're the State Department, right, and you are not taking this seriously, you are meaningfully going to constrict your applicant pool. Because if people, you know, think, look, I'm going to go work at DOD and then I'll never be able to write a lawfare post or a war on the rocks post, let alone my memoir or manifesto. They're just not going to come at some point. Well, on that note, as we all dwell on the professional futures of future civil servants, we have come to the end of our time. But of course, would not be rational security if we did not leave you with a few object lessons to contemplate over the coming week. Quinta, let me turn to you first. I am going to recommend a book, a novel that I read over the last week. It is by Colson Whitehead, who some listeners might recognize as the author of The Underground Railroad and The Nickel Boys, both two, I think, really incredible works of literature and also incredibly upsetting and depressing works of literature. This book is not that. It is called Harlem Shuffle. I would describe it as rollicking, I think is fair. It is about Harlem in the 1960s. And a it, the main character is a Black 
furniture salesman coming up in the world who also uh, sort of accidentally gets involved in organized crime. And there, there is a lot going on. There's, I mean, Whitehead is an incredible writer, just like on the sentence by sentence level. It's just beautifully, beautifully written and crafted. And it's also just a really fun, good story. And I know Whitehead has given some interviews where he said, basically, I wrote two really depressing books. I wanted to write something fun for once. I would definitely recommend this for anyone looking for that. There's sort of enough going on uh, in, a, in a literary and political sense that there's you know plenty to chew on. You don't feel like you're eating empty calories, as it were. But it's just also great fun. So highly recommend it if you're looking for something to read. That's a pretty damning metaphor the week after Thanksgiving where we've done nothing but eat empty <laughs> calories. Turkey, turkey is, it's not empty calories. It's full of calories. I, mine was mostly, mostly pumpkin pie. I also think we need to get Colson Whitehead to have a coffee with Cormac McCarthy and explain Ew. this to him too. That like you've, you know, like you've, you've written your depressing novels. You've written a have bunch of them fun. in a row. You have some fun, man. Have some fun. I mean, you know. Which I mean, I, what I like about this book is right. Like it, it proves that you can write a really good you know, well-crafted, incredible novel without it being a downer, which there's a place for downer books, but not all books have to be downers. Exactly. Um, my Object Lesson is also a book, uh, though a book of nonfiction. Uh, it's called The Women Are Up to Something uh, by J.B. Lipscomb. It is a group biography of four women philosophers of the second half of the 20th century, four very famous English women philosophers, uh, Philippa Foote, Elizabeth Anscombe, Iris Murdoch, and uh, Mary Midgley. Um, who are all classmates at uh, Oxford during World War II and who each in their own way contributed to this very interesting project of saving moral philosophy from the kind of logic choppers and ordinary language folks uh, at Oxford. I, I, do, I am not doing this justice. I can already keep, like feel half the podcast audience having fallen asleep by my description of that. I'm, I'm intrigued. You sold me. It is a me. delightful, it is a delightful book. I mean, if you like, if you like philosophy, I highly recommend it in part because it really shows how useful it is in understanding even the most technical aspects of philosophy to understand the story and the background and the kind of personal motivations of the people that develop that philosophy. And if you don't think you like philosophy, you should read it because it's a really fun group biography of four kind of amazing, amazing people. Uh, the, the, the title, The Women Are Up to Something, uh, comes from an incident in which um, Harry Truman was going to get an uh, honorary degree from Oxford shortly after World War II. And Elizabeth Anscombe, who was horrified at Truman because he dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, went and was going to try to derail the vote that was going to give him the honorary degree. Uh, and it was beaten back because the people who were organizing it discovered that, quote unquote, the women are up to something <laughs> and tried to mobilize their supporters. Um, so that, that's, where the, that's where the title is from. But it's really wonderful. It's really interesting. If you're a philosophy nerd like me, it's fun. And it's also just an amazing example of the kind of unintended consequences of great historical events. You know, the reason these four women became such excellent philosophers, I mean, obviously, you know, most of it's because they were very talented, but it's also because they went to Oxford in the early 40s when all the men or many of the men had gone off to fight in World War II. And so suddenly there was now capacity to actually pay attention to the female students of Oxford rather than relegate them to the sort of second class educational status that they would have otherwise been in. So for like five years, there was this like tiny group of women who had gone to Oxford and actually got to work with you know, the great 
academics. And, and there's this weird, you know, gap before them and after them until like the 60s and 70s when you had a, a greater gender uh, revolution. So anyway, it's a terrific book, really, really enjoying it. And so uh, once you've finished uh, the rollicking read of the Harlem Shuffle, you should read the slightly less rollicking, but still fairly rollicking group philosophical biography, uh, The Women Are Up to Something by J.B. Lipscomb. Well, I guess we're doing books now for object lessons. Uh, so much for recipes and dumb podcasts and bird sightings we're uh, as we've done in the up, past. You know, I guess. Well, I don't have a book this week because I don't read, guys. I've got a young kid and I'm busy as hell. So books are, have gone out the window a while ago. But I do listen to a lot of podcasts. Uh, so I thought I would throw out an endorsement for another podcast series I've been listening to that I've really enjoyed. I actually just picked it up um, having listened to most of it and then missed the last few episodes and I'm catching, re-listening to it and catching those last few now called The Lazarus Heist uh, by BBC World. It is a phenomenal, I think 10 or 12 episode podcast series looking at North Korean cyber crime, essentially, starting with the Sony hack as kind of a framing incident, then going through the whole range of bank heists and crazy transfers and the intersection of, you know, North Korean other intelligence activities and cybercrime activities. It is absolutely fascinating and a real window into a whole universe of activities relating to North Korea that I was not fully aware of. Very well done, done at kind of a fast-paced true crime sort of pacing, uh, which is against my better angels, something I do, in fact, enjoy a quite great deal in podcasts. Uh, and so like the, it has a very kind of a dynamic, engaging listen. So I highly recommend it. Check it out. And there are just so many charming British accents. Uh, you can't get enough of it as with any great BBC World product. So definitely check that out. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. You can still find our show page at lawfareblog.com, where you'll, you will find liner notes for this episode, including links to the articles and object lessons we discussed. You can also purchase Rational Security swag at lawfarestore.com or go to patreon.com slash lawfare to become a material supporter of Lawfare for ad-free podcast feeds and other special benefits, including a committed ad-free feed for this podcast. Please do follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. And wherever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review or hit that share button and pass along to your loved ones. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Hemjish 2 of Goat Rodeo. And our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yam. And as always, we are edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Quinta and Allen, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. 